Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Childers, and this is New Books Network. Today, I have the great pleasure of hosting uh, Laurie Markhofer, who will talk about their book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, The Sexologist, His Student, and The Empire of Queer Love. Welcome to New Books Network, Laurie. Hey, thanks, Armand. Thanks for having me. This is great. Uh, I mean... I, before we start, I have to say I loved reading this book also because it it speaks very closely to uh, what I'm writing on uh, in my dissertation. Um, and I, I mean, I work on sex education and whiteness, so this is kind of a perfect prequel to some of the things that I, I am saying in the dissertation. So it was wonderful reading it. That's great. Yeah, cool. I'm excited about your work. Thank you. Thank you Sounds so much. Sounds super cool. Uh, Maybe before we go into the book, uh, can you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I'm a, a associate professor at the University of Washington in German history, and I'm currently the John Bridgman Endowed Chair in History. Um, and yeah, this is my second book. I work on modern Germany, politics of sex, kind of early to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I also read with as much pleasure uh, the, your first book, Sex in Weimar. And I want to maybe, because I mean, I there are, of course, a lot of connections between two books. And I, maybe we can start with Sex in Weimar and then make our way to uh, this one. Uh, what was Sex in Weimar about and how do you see its connection to this book? Yeah, so, that, so the first book, Sex in the Weimar Republic, was about... Um, uh considering what sexual politics were like in Germany in the 20s when Germany had this really progressive democratic regime before the Nazis and I looked at gay politics and then I looked at things that were really strongly related so sex work super related um censorship pornography um and I argued that in some ways the Weimar state is very progressive so it 
in retrospect, like it has this reputation as just being like the 1970s, right? And everybody was like, which I think was not quite accurate. Um, but there were these really creepy managerial undertones to what progressive people wanted to do. So it was like, you could have some sexual freedom, but in particular, they really wanted to crack down on on sex work in public um, and working class people. There was a real class politics to it. So, And that was true for gay liberation as well. So the gay rights movement in Weimar is actually has some pretty dark moments, although at the same time, like they're fighting for sexual freedom and they have some inspiring moments too. So it was about this kind of dynamic that I think you see in a lot of like, I mean, if you look kind of broadly at the 20th century, it's not that uncommon, right? Around birth politics, birth control or can be racist often, like when white people are propagating them. And um, yeah, it's, it's not an uncommon kind of tension, but I think people like, hadn't really remembered it about Weimar. Like, like Weimar is this moment where people want to see this like heroic kind of openness. And I mean, I, you know, I do too, but I think we kind of lost sight of like the, the debates that they had. Um, but yeah, that was, so that was the first book. And then this book was actually like super related. It was kind of, it was, it started out as like, I was just kind of mopping you know, like the first book was done and I felt like I needed to like mop the floor one more time. Like there was kind of this missing piece from the first book, which was like my grad program was um, like is like the top grad program for African-American history. And a lot of my training was this was like in the 2000s, but a lot of it was like we would read these books and be kind of shocked that the person hadn't thought about racism in the book and like and then we would talk in the grad seminar about how the whole project would change if they had thought, and it was clearly related to the project, you know? So I, so I had that in mind and I was always troubled that like in my first book, stuff wasn't coming up about empire and race came up, but like around anti-Semitism, not around anti-blackness or, or Asian Asian people and white people, even though like there were black communities in Germany in the period I was looking at and there were Asian communities and Germany had just lost its colonies. And this was like a really big deal in the 20s. Right. So I was so I was always I felt like, well, that must be a problem in the first book that that wasn't coming up for me. So I was trying to somehow figure that piece out. Um, and then eventually it just became a book of its own. But it 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 was a it started out as like what what was going on with race and racism in gay politics in the 20s? And then I ended up really focusing on Hirschfeld. And it was going to be just an article about like, oh, actually, ideas about race and whiteness are super central to Hirschfeld's thought in this way that I hadn't appreciated when I was writing the first book. <laughs> and, then, and then it became, I was so, that was going to be like an article and then I was rereading his memoir of the of when he goes on the world tour and he meets Lei Siotong. And I and I at the time I was rereading it over the summer, like at the playground when my kid was like I, I had it on my phone and like my kid would for five minutes be like doing her own thing and I'd like read a page and like and I didn't think um I had read it already. So I was like, oh, this is just kind of doing due diligence. Like, but reading it again, I I was really taken aback 
by the relationship between Lay and Hirschfeld that 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 emerges between the lines in that book and like how in love with Lay he is and how Lay is part of the and and then the question of the 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 world journey they they were traveling through the empire it's like it's like cruise through empire <laughs> like like british empire dutch empire american empire like um and I that that blew me away. Like, what would it mean to for Hirschfeld, who had had this really troubling, these troubling central problems in his thought about racism and empire, and then he's an old man and he goes to Shanghai to give a lecture and he falls in love with this guy who grew up in colonial Hong Kong, and then they're going to travel through the empire together. Like, what did that do to his thought and what did that mean? And then I really like got drawn into Lay's story because because he had been so ignored and he's so interesting and I yeah so more and more I was like oh I really want to write something about him um and I guess like like luckily there was enough archival material to to reconstruct a lot of their relationship like because Hirschfeld's Lay saved Hirschfeld's journal and then Lay wrote a, a manuscript as well and yeah, so more and more it became just the story of their relationship. So it's kind of a weird, it's a weird sort of mashup of like an intellectual history, you know, and then these two guys and then and then more and more I got into the younger guys. So I think like as the book goes on, it's more about Lay and it's more sort of like, yeah. And then that was, yeah, like now that the book's finished, I'm like, I should have written more about Lay. It should have just been about him. <laughs> like, so yeah, that's the story. Well, it sounds like that could be another book in itself. <laughs> uh, um, and I mean, for also those of the listeners who don't know who Magnus Hirschfeld is, can you also talk a bit about him and how how also, I mean, his popularity right now in Germany is huge. So maybe a bit about those and how maybe his uh, story affects present uh, LGBT politics today. Yeah, so he was a German sexologist born into a Jewish family in the last, um, uh, like, the second half of the 19th century, got a medical degree and went on to be, I think, like, the most important person in gay rights activism from, you know, the 1890s through to the 1940s. Like, and I... I, you know, people will be like, well, what about Havelock Ellis or what? I mean, there's a couple or people are like, what about Ulrichs? Like, there's a couple of other people who were pretty central, but um, Hirschfeld had this just amazing career as a public intellectual that was some, that was a kind of career that was only really possible beginning, like in the early 20th century. There are a couple of people who have careers like this where they become celebrities and they become like strong advocates for a left of center position and that was this guy. And and he was centrally, I mean, he was advocating around a lot of stuff about sex. So so a lot of the of what would go on to become sex education. Um but one of his central issues was gay rights and homosexuality. And he was a, he was a staunch advocate for the idea that you're born homosexual, that there's a small minority of people who are born with this thing, you can't change it. It's part of nature. It's not an illness. So it's not fair to persecute people. And and people who have this homosexuality thing they're born with should be able to like quietly live out their lives. He wasn't a big, you know, it was not the 1970s. Like it was like, 
<laughs> it wasn't like we're gonna have a pride parade or anything but it was um yeah but he was like the shunned effect you know it's it's something that should be in private but that shunned affects your public life um and yeah, and super, super important guy and did more than anyone else to popularize that concept of homosexuality that now is taken for granted by a lot of people. Yeah, that you're born with it. It's not an illness. You shouldn't have to change it. Um, that there's a minority of people and the majority don't have it. So that so that idea, like he's the first person, he and Havelock Ellis um, and Ellis's co-author, like in the same year, both published that Um based in a biological model. So people had published, people had argued that earlier without the biological, um, like take on it. But I, but I really think like the biological version of that model is super influential, kind of more in a way, like as influential as the not as the idea that it doesn't, you know, this isn't about biology. Anyway, this is, I'm kind of going off in the weeds here. Um, but yeah, like a really important figure in gay history. And he, he, um, I mean, you. I haven't lived in Germany for uh, how long is it? About like, like quite a few years now. Almost, how last time I was really living there was like over, over uh, almost ten years. But, but yeah, like um, he wasn't a big figure in German popular memory, and then beginning in the nineteen eighties gay activists like kind of rediscovered Hirschfeld and now he is very he's super famous they're they like yeah like they named a big federal foundation which is awesome that that foundation exists it's named after him like their streets named after him they built a new memorial to him he's more and more I mean the last time I was visiting Germany I asked my friend who's gay I was like do you think most gay Germans like know Hirschfeld and she was like oh yeah every every everyone who's queer in Germany like knows this guy's name. And I mean, I don't know what you think, but I think probably like almost most Germans know his name now. Like he's very, yeah. No, I mean, very famous guy. I recently moved into this apartment and my, when I talked about my research to my landlord, landlord, he said, Oh, you must know about Magnus Hirschfeld. I was like, wow, how do you know about Magnus Hirschfeld? (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's also very difficult to hear anything critical about Magnus Hirschfeld right at the same time. So, I mean, that's why I think this book is very special in that sense. <laughs> yeah, um, I I think for like, like when I was there, I spent a, quite a, I was there in 2013 and um, they were raising money for one of the memorial projects, but the, but it, but the, the campaign very much to me seems like and I think this was like a smart move, but like gay activists were taking Hirschfeld and they were like holding him up to people who maybe didn't know about him. They were like, look, this is a usable past for us. Like this guy wasn't a Nazi. He was Jewish. He was persecuted by the Nazis. And and Germany had this like wonderful flourishing of sexual freedom under Weimar that he kind of represents. So, and we can remember that and be proud about it in this way. You know, there's these like long standing debates about like finding a usable past and whether Germans should find a usable past and whether that's okay. You know, and I, I love that like Germans debate that cause I grew up in the U S and there was like, no, nobody was asking whether there was a usable, you know, even though like American history is just as dark. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so he kind of became this emblem of, like, this, like, non-racist, non-Nazi, like, progressive Germany. And then, yeah, I think, like, it's a, it's probably going to be pretty 
upsetting to a lot of people to hear that he also was racist. Um, and I was, you know, I was upset. I think that, I think that historians haven't done enough to like, frankly, confront his troubling, the, the, the troubling passages in his work of which there are a lot of them. It, it reminds me of the, there was kind of a similar problem with Margaret Sanger, the American birth control advocate, where she had been such an icon for feminist historians um, and then the fact that she was racist was um, something that people kind of fell all over themselves trying to explain away. And then fin- I think finally people were like, no, we have to just confront this and stop naming stuff after her. Um, and Hirschfeld's racism, I think, is like complicated. And there's there's some ways in which, yeah, you know, like it's not like he, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. I tried in the book to like really just lay it all out there so people could judge for themselves. But I personally like have had it with Hirschfeld. I think we need to stop with the Hirschfeld. <laughs> there's just some, there's some things he wrote that are just so hard. Like, and I taught, you know, I, I like taught him to undergrads for a long time without knowing about those passages. And now I feel bad. I feel like I did a bad job. Cause I didn't, I didn't know. And I didn't tell my students and I was like, look, here's this guy. Like he was pretty cool, you know? And now I'm like, no, I I really need to be like, he had some, you know, he, he had some cool ideas, but then also he had some really nasty moments and we need to look at it all. But yeah, I'm, I'm um, very, I hope that the book gets some attention in, in Germany. And I think potentially it could, it could be um, controversial because of, yeah. Cause he's such a hero and it's like, Oh, also, I mean, in general, when you when you call any uh, historically important Jewish person racist, it also, I think, touches another uh, button that, yeah, it definitely r- rises up controversy. Um, yeah, I think that's know. true. Oh, sorry. Uh, I mean, that was something that... Um, some of the people who read the manuscripts, yeah, like, like I think people really were like, well, how can that be? Like, how could he be Jewish and persecuted by Hitler and also be racist himself? And it's it confused the heck out of me, like, for a while. So I, I tried in the book to, there's some very, like, detailed sections where I just give you every every quotation I could find that seems to illuminate this. He had a really complicated world view, but he, but he believed that, so he believed that Jews were, were racial, like he believed in racial Jewish identity, which a lot of Jewish thinkers did at the time. Um, that was pretty standard. And, and I don't think that in and of itself, that was necessarily like a, you know, that was a widely shared, view it's not that that's super disturbing but he thought jews were a white race um he thought that they were unfairly persecuted he was against racism but what he meant by that was that he was against scientific racism which is a particular kind of racism he he so so he saw himself as an anti-racist um but he also thought that um and he and he thought that there was no um you know, inherent biological reality to race. Like that's an idea he associated with scientific racism, the idea that that there's some kind of a biological inferiority that goes along with racial categorization that can't be changed. But at the same time, he thought that that 
the races, quote unquote, existed. And he thought that some races were more advanced than others. Um, the white race being the most, <laughs> which is pretty typical for white racism. Um, and he, and he, and he had a persistent anti-black prejudice that you find throughout his work. He wrote some really troubling things about, um, particularly African Americans, but also black Africans. He doesn't seem to have just been able to understand that there were black Germans, even though there were black Germans in Berlin and he had connections to black German organizing like he he exclusively writes about blackness that's something that's not about being german um and yeah he has some pretty pretty dismissive racist moments particularly towards black people that yeah that i think so and i mean if you think about it it's like yeah you know that that's not that, that does actually make sense right you can be the target of racism yourself and then also have racism towards other groups and and think that you're unfairly targeted by racism but still have prejudice against other people. That's, I mean, I feel like that's not that hard to wrap your mind around, but yeah, it did. It definitely threw me for a while. And I think it's going to throw other people too. Yeah. So I tried to just like be super detailed and show everybody, just show everybody what I had. And, you know, if you can look at the evidence and then if you're like, no, I don't really agree. That's okay too. Like the, the evidence is all there for people to see. Yeah. But yeah, I think it might it might freak some people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can yeah, I can definitely imagine that as well. Um uh, how does his relationship to Le and the whole world journey affect these ideas? Yeah, so um so he fell in love with this guy, this this guy from Hong Kong, who was much younger. And I do think Lei pushed pushed his thought, particularly towards anti-imperialism. So if you look at his work, like most of Hirschfeld's work, um, well, not all of Hirschfeld's work before he met Lei, he does write quite a bit about the empire. It's empire was really important to the way that the early gay activists came up with a concept of what it meant to be gay. They, it was pretty central. They thought a lot about the empire. He gathered a lot of evidence from empire. He was trying to prove that homosexuality existed all over the world because if it existed across these imperial boundaries and across racial categories, that meant that it must be a biological category that was like pretty deeply ingrained. So that, that was, so, so it was actually like the borders of empire and the borders of racialization made homosexuality more real in the biological model. It was really important to like, to, to build this model that became so influential. So in his earlier work, like there's all kinds of, you know, data he collected from empire where he would talk to German German and Dutch and other European, like white European men who had positions in the imperial service in the different colonies. And like, they would bring back their stories of cruising and stuff. And he would be like, this proves that homosexuality is universal. But he, but he, um, you know, Heike Bauer wrote a beautiful book about Hirschfeld as well, um, called the Hirschfeld archive. And, and in that she's, she remarks on this as well. She's like, he's just completely oblivious to the violence of empire. <laughs> like, and, 
And and she also points out that one of the people who co-founded with Hirschfeld the first gay rights group in history in Berlin, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, was a guy who had not only served in the empire, but had fought in a German colonial war against colonized people. Um, so they're, they they seem not to really care. They take empire as a granted, and they, and they think that there is a European right to rule through violence, and they don't have a problem with that right. But then when you look at, so we met Lay, they traveled around the world together. A lot of the book is about their journey together and these different moments in the journey. Um, but after they they finished the journey, they came back to Europe. Hirschfeld couldn't go back to Berlin because Hitler was in power. So he spent the next like year and a half moving around Central Europe um, and then France and writing a book about the world journey, like a memoir of the journey. And Lay really helped him with that. Lay acted as his assistant, and, and he was also his lover, um, and lived with him for a lot of that time and took care of him. Hirschfeld had bouts of illness, and Lay would help would, would be his main caregiver. But he also like helped him work on the book. I found this amazing uh, source in another memoir. So much of this book was like made possible by digital search. You know, my first book... I, I wasn't able to do that as much, but like it was incredible the kinds of connections that came up because of digitization. But so one thing was this this memoir that I um, wouldn't have looked at otherwise of somebody who was at the University of Zurich in this time period who remembered seeing them together in the library working together. So they sat next to each other and like worked on this book together, which was so cool. I never, you know, the book itself world the world journey book like totally covers up that they were together minimizes lay like he only appears every now and then he's the student he's the assistant like but um i think he had a pretty big influence on that book and in in world journey hirschfeld doesn't like roll back the kind of racial theory that you see in his other work but he is super critical of empire in a way that he's not really he's not in his other work there's a little bit there's a hint of like him changing his view on empire before so i think that like meeting lay and traveling through china um like coalesced with stuff that he was thinking about at the same time but he's he's just like a a a, um a very, very strong critic of empire in that book. And indeed, like, it's remarkable, the anti-imperial leaders that Herschel met on the world journey, like he stayed at Nehru's house. <laughs> and he met, he was, he was very well connected in Egypt with anti-colonial, like, leaders. Um, yeah, really, like, a super anti-colonial German traveling around. Um, and that comes through in that book. And I, I do partially credit Lei with that, like like his experience. I mean, he writes in the book about how like being in China and seeing the violence of foreign colonization in China. And, and then he describes some scenes of like horrible violence um, and 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 um, racial, you know, like racial aggression towards Lei. There's their descriptions of that as well by the Americans, by the British. Um, so, yeah, I think that it that the experience of that that the the lay himself like refocused Hirschfeld's thinking and and it's in that book that you find these moments where Hirschfeld describes gay rights as having to intrinsically be anti-colonial that he suggests that these are really the, the two that these struggles are really related i mean the the project of the book like is kind of to show that gay rights from the get-go like had to be anti-racist and anti-colonial or not 
like it had like that decision was in front of like white gay activists from the very beginning. And for the most part, Hirschfeld's like, I don't care about racism or I, I engage in some racism myself or like I'm against other kinds of racism, but it's not related to gay rights, you know, but, but he also had these moments, has these moments where he's like, no, this is the state. There's a broad struggle for freedom and it's about gay liberation and it's about fighting against empire. And those things are related. And of course for Lay, they were totally related because Lay was a colonial subject who was gay, who was Chinese, European, Canadian. So like all of these things were intrinsically related for him. And, yeah, so I'm kind of like, you know, Hirschfeld, in a lot of ways, he really falls down on the job, like, but he, even he has these inspiring moments where he sees a broad struggle. And I think that's, um, you know, that in, in queer history, a lot of people associate that with the 60s and 70s. But it's like, no, it was there from the beginning. It was there from the beginning. And I mean, at the same time, uh, you talk about this analogy between... Uh, homosexual uh, and uh, as the kind of sexual minority versus uh, racial or ethnic minorities and how these, like the an understanding of the races affects the, the notion of homosexuality. Can you also talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So this was this is like a, a departure from Foucault's history of the formation of homosexual identity which I don't think is totally wrong, but I think there's this alternative strand of identity formation that actually starts earlier than Foucault, than Foucault periodizes it, um, which is that really like from, from the 1830s, and actually I think you can find it earlier, prob- I think we're going to date it earlier, I think we're going to date it to the French Revolution basically, but like there's this idea that if I'm a man who feels same-sex desire, I'm I'm part of a particular oppressed class in society. And the way they... So they're fighting against the idea that, like, homosexuality is, like, a super sinful, you know, the like, the medieval model. Um, so they have to explain, well, what... You know, if you're not, like, a super sinner who's in league with the devil, like, what are you? Or if you're not mentally ill, like, what are you? And it's like, well, we are... We're a, we're a class, like... Um, but broadly, like broader than socioeconomic class. So like, we're like, we're oppressed like women or we're oppressed like witches were oppressed by the witch burnings. And if, and like Robert Tobin has a great book on this too. But if you look at really early, like pre-Hirschfeld, people writing about same-sex desire in German speaking Europe, like they make these analogies. Analogy was kind of this like, it, like gay activism wasn't going to happen without some kind of analogy and they needed to analogize. They, they feel this compulsion to analogize um, from the beginning, from the beginning. So, so that was like, that was really eye opening Cause like I was familiar with the problems with that analogy in gay politics in the nineties. And then also in second wave feminism, like the way that like, like feminists of color and queer of color critique had pointed out that that kind of, that, that analogizing between like, well, I'm gay and that's like being black, you know, that just erases the subject position of a queer black person. And it's, and I would add, I mean, there's lots of critiques of that kind of analogizing, but also like being a white queer is not like being a black queer and it's not like being a straight black person in a lot of ways. Like, um, But so I was like, oh, wow. But that, so that kind of analogy politics goes back to the very beginning. Um, So if you look at the 1830s, the, and then you go forward, there's a movement from a couple of analogies that they'll come back to. Like they'll analogize to Jewish Europeans a lot. 
um, so so Jewish European like Jews in Europe were subject to all kinds of special legislation, and and didn't have citizenship, and then and then gradually across the like from um, you know the French Revolution through um, to 1871 when Germany became a nation state, like 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 Jews were emancipated, and that was and Jewish Europeans really fought for that, and it was like a huge long term struggle and and an amazing like victory um, through several generations of um, like. Jewish activism, um, but gay, like like non-Jewish and Jewish gay activists see the the struggle for emancipation of European Jews as a model, and they and they're like, we are like Jews, we're an unfairly oppressed class, or we're like witches who were burned, you know, we were burned at the stake, they were burned at the stake. That was all superstition. That was wrong. But as the twentieth century like proceeds more and more the analogy is to is to racial or national minorities so they stop talking about witches and they kind of stop talking about like we're like women you know who are also like a disenfranchised class who are fighting against oppression in 19th century europe and more and more it's like we're like the poles um or we're like the jews and and uh, so the like racial minority, the the coinage of sexual minority, that term that like is so prevalent today, is is a reference to Jews, the racial minority. It's coined by this dude who like was a Hirschfeld um, coworker and kind of frenemy, like Kurt Hiller's, um but yeah, who was also Jewish. But but it's like the sexual minority, that idea. Is, is comes into being through analogy to racial minorities. So it's like from the beginning you have this problem of like, well, what if I'm what if I'm a member of a racial minority and I'm a member of the sexual minority? It becomes this kind of like plus one category rather than the central the, the essential beginning position, subject position point. Um, which is I think which can be a really bad problem for gay politics and I think was in the 20th century. Like um, yeah for uh, I mean, the, the 20th century is like has many, many examples of awesome queer of color organizing. Um, but it also has examples of white queer people uh, like being racist or organizing in such a way that like they exclude people of color because they're not talking about racism at all or they don't think it's a related issue to gay politics, which is like um, which I think is enabled by this kind of analogy. So, yeah, that yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off and i mean it still happens <laughs> so that's the that's the yeah that's the it's it's still a problem and yeah, i mean what your book does really well is to show that where that is coming from as well um 
And you also talk about uh, Hirschfeld's uh, relationship with eugenics and then how it relates to homosexuality. Can you also talk a bit about that? Yeah, so that this is like um, an interesting one because when I was doing my just so so Hirschfeld and eugenics had been the subject of a big debate in the '90s and the 2000s in Germany. There was a big reckoning amongst Hirschfeld scholars that resulted in a lot of scholarship, and I read all that when I was like writing my first book, and I was the the consensus that came out was that he was like, he believed in eugenics and he supported eugenics, but he was for voluntary stuff. So we don't have to necessarily get that upset about it. And I can see why they, they came to that because in the, in the nineties and the two thousands, the, the sense that historians had of what eugenics was, was to me pretty like kind of too broad. So it was like, oh, if you were a eugenicist in the 20s, then you were a Nazi who was like helping the Nazis come to power. And that that's not true of Herschel, you know. Um, but now I think we have like a better kind of sense of it that like if you weren't a communist in Germany in the 20s, you probably were in favor of eugenics. It was a widely held set of beliefs and the like people in the social democratic party who favored eugenics had a really different position from people in the Nazi party who favored it and wanted different kinds of programs and i don't think i mean the fact that like basically everybody agreed with eugenics with the exception of the communists like yes that did enable the nazi genocide but it's sort of you know it's such the causality there is so broad like it's not yeah I, it's not fair to be like well the social democrats are responsible for <laughs> Yeah, um, they because they did fight to keep the Nazis out of power. They didn't support the Nazi eugenic legislation because they thought it was, you know, not it was like too ambitious. So, I mean, that I agree with, but like, it's not okay. So, so I didn't even really think I needed to revisit the eugenic stuff, right? And then as I was revisiting his his writing about race. I learned that he thought eugenics was really central to his anti-racism. So he did not think that people should, he didn't believe in a given racial hierarchy. He thought that some groups who were races were more advanced, but he thought that that could change over time. And he, he was a staunch opponent of like judging people by their race. So he would say like race, you know, people have individual characteristics. We shouldn't judge people by their race. At the same time, he clearly did judge people by their race like he was not able to hold to that for himself particularly african-american people that he met um he also had a racialized view of lay like he had this kind of idea of like chinese loyalty you know but but he but he did also like i mean he's an he's a very contradictory you know kind of interesting guy like he definitely like his core principle was like we shouldn't judge people by their race but then the next part of that for him was like we should judge them by their eugenics right like eugenics is the eugenics is the scientific way to determine human worth like (laughs) he did not think that that he didn't believe in this basic equality like he wasn't an 18th century thinker he was a 19th century thinker so (laughs) 
he really does think that people have different different capabilities based on who their parents are and who their who their fam you know family descent. Um, so like when they were in the Philippines, that Leigh and Hirschfeld went to hang out with this professor who was a German expat who had married um, uh, a Filipino woman and had a family in the Philippines. And they and Hirschfeld had a whole chat with him about eugenics, and they both had this opinion that like racism was was not based on science so like so the so scientific racism would say like oh this german expat professor who had had children who are mixed quote-unquote mixed race children and they're inferior right but but herschel's like rejects that you know he's like that's ridiculous like and the professor himself like this herschel recorded this in his memoir but apparently this guy was like you know that's bogus like my children are very excellent which um in fact, like they're, you know, they're, there's, um, yeah, like there's, I have a superior children. And the reason for that is that I am eugenically fit. And so is my wife. And so Hirschfeld's like, that's right. You know, we need to, we, we need to, he, he, he's like, we need to like differentiate between people based on real science, which is eugenics. <laughs> and then, but then you're probably like, oh, okay, well, that's weird, but like, maybe that's okay. But here's why it's not, I mean, I don't think that's okay, right? That's super dis- anti-disability, like, also, like, you know, wrong, and like, not not the world that I want to live in. But like, but the worst part of it is, he also wasn't for voluntary stuff. He was for involuntary eugenic, eugenic measures, in particular for involuntary sterilization. Um, and that's something that actually, like, I've found misstated in other people's, like, in, in pretty important Hirschfeld scholars' work, like, they will, I think, under, I think they're not aware, maybe, or they're kind of, like, underplaying it. Or, I mean, it's possible that, like, when you compare him to the Nazis, he's he's so much less aggressive that, but he did, like, he writes in his own book and like i have this i quoted the whole passage so people can like check it out but like he's like yeah like he there's a case where um he examined a woman and he recommended her for involuntary sterilization because she was having extramarital sex and her parents were upset about that and he wasn't a surgeon so he didn't perform the operation but he recommended her he, he referred her to somebody else you know and then he writes like, yeah, he's he's like, generally, I'm not in favor of compulsory sterilization, but there are some cases where it's warranted. And this is one of them. Um, he thought that woman had an intellectual disability. So this is like a pretty bad, like a pretty grisly anti-disability politics. And it's not on the side of his gay rights activism. It's It's actually like really part of it because he has this whole argument that like gay people are nature's way of preventing degeneration from being passed through families because gay people don't reproduce and he thought it was really important for gay people not to have children because he thought we were like nature's like like we're the little sack that nature puts the bad degeneration material in and then we don't have kids so we don't pass it on so it's really important that like we not have kids and um he thought that was like so he thought that you gent like like a like a a scientifically based left of center eugenics was going to lead to gay liberation for this reason. And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of sad. I'm just, yeah. I'm like, Oh man, that's (laughs) 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 it kind of sucks. Like it's really, um, it's really anti disability. Yeah. Anyway, it's an, it's a pretty Mm anti-disability. But it also says something about his relationship with women. Or, and I mean, you also pose this question, like, where are the women in his theories? Where, 
Can you tell a bit about that as well? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, the the person, the case I found. It, this isn't his published work. This case, um, it's a it's a young woman, uh, and I yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. There, so even in his lifetime, feminists had criticized him for not for sexist politics. Um, and that, those Charlotte uh, Wolf, who was a, a German British sexologist, uh, lesbian feminist author, and who, who wrote a biography of him in the eighties, like like brought this. I mean, she like I would say she is pretty pro Hirschfeld, but she does think that he was sexist. Um, uh, and uh, so so those criticisms of him aren't new, but. Um, they had those criticisms of him had largely been dismissed by people who were like, no, he had these important alliances with feminists and, and he was feminist. And like, he did support a lot of feminist politics. He was, he wasn't, you know, again, it's like kind of a complicated picture. Yeah. So he was a supporter of like, you know, birth control and like, of course, suffrage and, um, and he did have, relationships with important feminists although i think they were a lot more superficial than we had previously thought um like some of the people he gets credit for palling around with i don't think he really palled around with them that much and he certainly never cites them he doesn't cite women or quote them you know uh but at this if you look at like what he wrote about women some of it's really dismissive and horrible you know like and sexist there's it's hard um also I, and Heike Bauer makes this point too but his approach to lesbian politics is just like he just doesn't get it like he hasn't really spent the time to think about well what are the pressures on women even though the sodomy law doesn't apply to them in Germany it did in it did in Austria but um and other countries but uh yeah, the German sodomy law didn't apply to women, but but that doesn't mean that women weren't, you know, being driven to suicide by like this intensely homophobic society. Um, and Hirschfeld, th- again, this is Heggy Bauer's point, but like he just he just can't understand that, you know, like. But also, yeah, he wrote some pretty dismissive things about women that I think, you know, I mean, I think broadly, like with some of with these historical figures, like these kind of great white men of history at least in my lifetime, some of the approach was like, well, yeah, they did write some bad things, but let's ignore that because of the other stuff that they wrote. Like, like the bad stuff, you know, they didn't really mean that, but actually it's all really, it's all related. I think like, I don't, his politics wasn't then taken up really strongly by lesbian feminists. And I think that's not, yeah, that's not an accident. Anyway. And, uh, Okay, I, have, I guess two more questions. Uh, how about uh, Lee's sexology, and what happens to Lee after Hirschfeld passes? Yeah, so I wanted this book. I didn't want it to just like like. I was like, I don't want this just to be a critique of this guy, like, like revealing to everybody that another white guy from the '30s was racist. Like, I mean, I think almost all the white people in this time period were racist. So, um, uh, I mean, there's different kinds of racism, you know, and that's kind of interesting. But like, um, 
I wanted it also to be like a biography of this other guy, Lay, because gay politics in the 30s, like the history of it is so focused on white people. And that in itself, I, I think, is a problem because this guy was also a big part of the story. And he had been a footnote and or, or or like the things people write about him are kind of dismissive. You know, they're like, oh, he had this Chinese boyfriend, whatever, like, but yeah, so I got really interested in Lay and I wanted him to, I wanted this book to like finally do him some historical justice too. There's lots of biographies of Hirschfeld, but you no, know, Ralph Dizza wrote an article on Lay, which is a good article. But other than that, nobody had written on him, like, like in and of himself. He's just like a paragraph in Hirschfeld biographies. So, um, so I got really interested in him and, and I, and the paper trail like really drops off after Hirschfeld died. So I have lots of documentation of what Lay was up to when Hirschfeld was alive. But then after he dies, it's like hard. Um, but there were sources. So I did my best to reconstruct his life. And he, he seems to have had a really fascinating life. Um, and was totally involved in gay politics after Hirschfeld died. But in a, but it was a different world because the Second World War happened. So he spent time at the University of Zurich studying, and he got involved there with an older British novelist who himself was kind of, was definitely like racist and kind of had a conservative gay politics. But um, that guy wrote a novel in which Lay is the main character. And um, so through that, I was able to, I had to be really careful because the novel is racist, but um, I, I think I was able to piece together some of what Lay's life was like and like, and Lay's vision for his life, I think comes through in that novel. Lay wrote in his own papers that he, that he collaborated on that novel, that he a lot, had a lot of input. Um, but then after that, like, the most and and the most exciting source on Lay is that Lay wrote his own book about Hirschfeld, and and his notes for that book and sixteen pages or so of that book itself exist and are in Berlin, and I was able to go see them, so that was really neat. And in that, Lay like presents himself, and he he talks about his own research that he did. He's a he's a sexologist who spent decades doing research around the world. He doesn't give specifics about exactly what he did. He, he lists a couple of places that he went. Um, but then he presents his findings, which are very different from Hirschfeld's. <laughs> so that was super cool. He, he, um, he broke with a lot of Hirschfeld's core ideas. Um, and he also was writing a novel about... The, the book is a mixture between a novel about him and Hirschfeld and his own sexology. And I thought that was really interesting and important that... Hirschfeld's all about science, you know, and I think it's cool that like towards the end of the 20th century, a different perspective from Lay is like, we have to, we have to do this with fiction. Like we have to write livable lives in fiction. We can't just, you know, try to find the biological root of homosexuality. Like that's not going to do it. And I, I mean, that's a lot closer to like my experience of the world. So it really resonated with me. Um, yeah, but he lay so lay um, uh, immigrated to Canada in the seventies and then lived lived there until nineteen ninety three when he passed in Vancouver. So he's like a big he's a big figure in queer Canadian history, um, who hasn't been written about as being in queer Canadian history. You know, he's he's only like he's always a Hirschfeld kind of in the Hirschfeld 
historiography, but hopefully um, he will get more attention. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, lastly, like, I mean, one of the subtitles of the book is The Empire of Queer Love. What about their empire and if it persists today? Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, the fantasy of white uh, queer people that, that, um, you can travel to these to these places that were colonized or or formerly colonized and find this kind of sexual freedom there or or gender freedom i actually found it incredible like trans um trans autobiographical narrative of finding the freedom to transition like only in colonial india because it there's more openness and kind of a mystical openness to gender transition there um and and that that empire, yeah, like it's the fantasy that like you're gonna go to Morocco and get off the boat and immediately like some beautiful person will hit on you and like it'll be great and then you'll leave and you don't have to think about like oh well this is a call you know what's going on here like there was a you know there was a war here there was like um, violence is going on um, you know like cruising in in Johannesburg and yeah like like ignoring the violence and the exploitation and the power dynamics and having this. Um, fantasy of empire. And, and I, I mean, I'm not the only person who's pointed this out, but I think a lot of like queer white Europeans went into the imperial service, like, like became colonial civil servants because of this, um, this like idea. So that's the empire of queer love. And it's, and that, um, that concept is central to Herschel's model of homosexuality. It's really a big part of like gay history, but I think there's also the sense of like the empire of queer love, like, I became very charmed by the story of Hirschfeld and Lay's relationship, despite the fact that Hirschfeld had all these troubling things about him. Um, uh, just like what it was like to be two men traveling together in love in the thirties, mostly by ship through these Imperial spaces. Um, and I tried to like show that in the book, like the kinds of racial dynamics that they navigated. Um, Hirschfeld, Hirschfeld was taken as white when he was in the empire. The fact that he was Jewish for the most part didn't matter. Um, but Lei was not, he was Chinese. So they, they ran into lots of problems. Um, and yet Lei was from this very wealthy family and had a lot of resources and that, that also, you know, helped him, um, navigate those things. And, um, they're in these anti-colonial spaces at times too. So it's like, like I was really, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, did the Nehru family know that they were a couple when they stayed overnight with them or not? Yeah. Like what did they make? <laughs> and so it's, um, yeah, it's also about like being queer in the empire and being in love, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lori Marhofer for the, for this wonderful conversation. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, my name is Armand Childers, this is New Books Network. Until next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.